The scripture lesson for today comes from Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. <clears throat> we uh, continue this morning in our sermon series, work, working our way through the book of Genesis. And this morning, we will see that sin, that evil, is no longer a force working against us, outside of us. Uh, now, it is something, as we will see, something that's happening within us, uh, no outside evil force came to attack Cain, as we saw in chapter 3, the voice of evil coming to the first couple. Now, Rather, now it's inside of Cain. It's inside of us. If chapter 3 introduced us to sin itself and to the evil, the brokenness in this world, chapter 4 introduces us to what theologians refer to as original sin. Now, original sin, simply stated, explains why seemingly good people do bad things. It's the fact that although human beings still remain marked with the good fingerprint of the God whose image that we bear, we also now simultaneously pass down another legacy to subsequent generations. That is a propensity that is always there, that is always lingering, to do the wrong thing. A sense within all of us that we are all well aware of that to do good things, to establish good habits, actually requires effort. <laughs> While simply doing that which is 
often less than human or fails to contribute to the common good of mankind, that actually comes quite naturally and needs no effort. <laughs> That's a one definition of original sin. And that's humanity's reality for all of us. And that's the Bible's explanation for why things are the way they are. Now, you may be here this morning and you may object and you may think that this sounds like a very pessimistic and depressing description of the human race or the doctrine of original sin. That's, that's kind of a quaint old idea, isn't it? And out to that, I would just respond, hang in there. But also note that the key to becoming, to not, excuse me, not becoming cynical in this life is not in tampering with that diagnosis, but rather leaning into and living out of a right prognosis. Because to the degree that we diagnose any problem correctly, we will more rightly identify the appropriate solution to such problem. So with that introduction, will you pray with me just one more time as I'm getting a potential spam call on my phone? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we come into this place, however we find ourselves this morning, however we find ourselves, whether we come in celebrating with joy in our hearts, there's much that we celebrate this week, or whether we come in after a week that has been very difficult, stressful, anxiety-ridden, or frankly depressing. Whether our level of belief is strong and firm, or we have many, many doubts. We're just struggling to hold on in this particular moment, were we honest with ourselves and you and others. However we find ourselves, would you convince us the one thing that we all have in common this morning? is that we're actually a bigger mess than we even know and recognize at any given moment in time. And yet, as you see us, when you see us, and you see all of us perfectly, you see us holistically, you see all the good, the bad, the ugly, the confusion, the sadness, the depression, the joy, the doubt, you see all of it, you see the sin. And when you do, when you see it, your response, is not to cut and run, but you actually move towards us in redeeming, recreating, redemptive love. Help us to believe that you're doing that even now as we interact with your word. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, chapter 4, actually verse 1, starts off uh, almost optimistically, even hopeful. It's actually a pretty good start from what we were used to in the last few weeks. Verse 1, repeating, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. That's a good thing. Saying, and this is Eve's words, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, with the help of Yahweh. And again, she bore his brother Abel. It's a hopeful start. It's an optimistic start. In fact, if you recall last week, we saw Adam at least subtly finally respond with a, a maybe just even a small level of faithfulness to God, to God's discipline after his fall, 
when he called his wife Eve, the mother of all living. Adam apparently was convinced that that was not the end of the story, that God still had more to be written. He still had commission. He was going to see his commission of humanity through to see his images across the entire world. And so he looks at his wife as the mother of all living. And here it appears that Eve may also be expressing some faith of her own. In chapter 3, we saw God make a promise. After the fall of the first couple, he made a promise that through their seed, through specifically to Eve, to, through your seed, I'm going to crush the head of the evil one's seed. And so here again, Eve conceives, bears Cain, and says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, sitting on this side of Jesus' first coming, it's clear that Jesus himself is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise by God. But Eve didn't have a timetable to work with <laughs> when she bore Cain. And so when she actually has a child at this point, she attributes it to God's providence, to his care, to his help. Maybe this is God's promise delivered. I have born, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. At least there is some evidence there for our first parents actually coming finally to their senses about their own waywardness and at the same time a recognition of God's faithfulness. That's a good place to start the chapter. But verse 2 continues, unfortunately, <laughs> and sets up the plot for today. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. The Lord Yahweh had no regard for Cain and his offering, but he did have regard for Abel and his offering. Both men bring something of their vocation, what they do for a living. But the question becomes, why did God not receive with favor Cain's sacrifice? Well, first thing we need to note is that there's no command here by God to bring a sacrifice at all. This is not in response to God saying, bring me a sacrifice. <laughs> no, the two brothers are doing this on their own. So what's the difference? Why the regard for one and not the other? Well, first of all, we can eliminate a couple things. We can eliminate the fact that it's not due to the fact that Abel's was a meat sacrifice and the other was simply a fruit or grain from the ground offering. That can't be the case. First of all, remember Adam and Eve were called to work the ground. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with bringing an offering from the ground. But secondly, the Israelites who had been hearing this story for the first time 
are aware of several types of offerings and sacrifices that God prescribes. The only sacrifice out there, not just sin sacrifices and offerings. Yes, those require blood, but there are other sacrifices and offerings at well that do not require blood and actually are taken from the ground. Grain and fruit sacrifices. Thanksgiving offerings are what those would be. And so the clue to understanding the difference, therefore, is not in the variety of the sacrifice, but in the quality of the sacrifice. Notice the author's description of Abel's offering and the author's lack of description of Cain's. Verse 3, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. That's his gig. Abel, however, brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The firstborn. Why is that significant? Well, at least because if you think about it, the firstborn, there's no guarantee there's going to be another one. (laughs) At least that much. To give the first establishes a clear recognition of where these good gifts come from and whose ultimately they are. It's a recognition that we are merely stewards of all that God gives. And so Abel is expressing his faithful heart by his gift. God, I know that all I have is yours. Therefore, you will get my first. But secondly, the author notes the fat portions. Those are the best. For those here that do eat meat... (laughs) It's as if the author is saying, Abel gave the most marbled parts and cuts (laughs) of his sacrifice, of his sheep. That's the point. And so while Cain seems to simply be going through the motions, Abel saw this as an opportunity more than simply a necessary religious rite that you just simply do as the people of God. Rather, he saw this as a way to express the depth of his gratitude and his thanksgiving to God. And so that's the question for us this morning from the text. Are we aware when we are simply going through the motions or ask from a different direction, and to put a finer point on it, how much thanksgiving and gratitude is God worth to you? How much thanksgiving and gratitude is God worth to me? Now, that is not designed or asked to be a guilt-inflicting question (laughs) at all. God knows being driven by guilt most of my life nearly drove me insane. That is not a question out of guilt. (laughs) It's a triage question. It's a temperature-taking question. It's a question to seriously ponder on your own or with your spouse or with your friend. How much thanksgiving and gratitude is God worth to you? You see, the degree that we recognize how much we have been freely given is the degree which we will freely give. We will demonstrate thanksgiving. And so here's a diagnostic for you, a test. (laughs) 
If someone were to have access to your calendar, assuming all of your events were recorded, would they be able to tell how much Thanksgiving God was worth to you based on how you spent your time? If someone had access to your thoughts, God forbid, (laughs) would they be able to tell how much Thanksgiving you had for God? If someone had access to your bank account, your budget, what would one's impression be regarding the amount of gratitude you have for God? Perhaps, perhaps, it's simply laziness, just not yet taking the time to organize and give it thought, perhaps. Perhaps it's stinginess. But if it's not a lot, if the indication is not a lot, perhaps it's an indication that at least at this point in your life, God is more of a functional, distant deity than a present, intimate, heavenly father. Just possible. Or perhaps the time is there, the input and investment is there, but at this particular point in time in your life, perhaps it feels more tiring and exhausting to give than simply than out of gratitude and gladly. Either way, perhaps, perhaps at this point in time, you have forgotten and need to be reminded simply that your time, your talents, your treasures are yours to steward. And they're given by one who gives generously. Again, these diagnostic questions are not intended to instill guilt, but rather to be a diagnostic question of looking at one's heart, taking account of my time, my talents, my treasures, and my demonstrating that I do believe in a generous God and I'm grateful to him. Not to get something more from him, not to earn something from him, but simply maybe a realization, maybe my heart at this particular point in time has cooled off a bit. We are human after all. We do go through seasons. And there are times when you and I need to be reminded of the goodness and the graciousness and the generosity of our faithful God. Last week or the week before, I can't remember at this point, I'm getting old. I read a quote by G.K. Chesterton. I'm going to give you another one today. (laughs) This is what he says about gratitude in all of life. You say grace before your meals. All right. But I say grace before the concert, before the opera. I say grace before the play, before the pantomime. He did live a few generations prior to us. I say grace before opening a book. I say grace before sketching. I say grace before I paint before I swim, before I fence, before I box, before I walk, before I play, before I dance. I say grace before I dip the pen in the ink. That's a life of gratitude. That's one who is in touch with how much thanksgiving they have to offer God. 
Again, not a guilty nudge. <laughs> it's an exhortational nudge that perhaps you just simply right now need to remind, be reminded yourself of whose image you bear, from whom all blessings flow, and who sent his son, that he might live, die, and rise again to ensure that your relationship with your maker might be eternally secured. Perhaps it's simply a wake-up call. Is God getting your first fruits? Is he getting your fattened portions? (laughs) Or is he getting simply leftovers at this point? Verse 5 continues. It gets worse. So Cain was very angry. His face fell. And Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? We see more of God's kind and gentle reaction to his image's waywardness. Right here, right after Cain gets angry because God doesn't accept his sacrifice but accepts his brother's, What is God's response? It shouldn't surprise us at this point. (laughs) He asks a question. He's done this again and again when his images go their wayward way. He asks a question, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Why are you downtrodden? How long-suffering is our God with us? But Cain's reaction even to the questioning displays further what's going on in his heart and why his was not an acceptable sacrifice in the first place because of the heart with which it was offered. He's mad. He's angry. Why do you and I get angry? I would make the case that often you and I get angry, upset, frustrated, Because either we didn't get something we thought we deserved or we got something that we didn't think we should have gotten. We thought we deserved something else and that was withheld from us. In Cain's response to God accepting his brother's offering, this anger, this rage is really coming from, it's really demonstrating a classic case of spiritual pride at the end of the day. You see, evidence of spiritual pride reveals itself when we, you and I, get quickly defensive. When we are criticized, when someone disagrees with us, when we're rebuked. Spiritual pride takes any criticism as an attack against itself. And so our feelings often get hurt, not because we think too little of ourselves, because actually we think too much of ourselves. You see, had Cain's heart posture been in the right place, when God comes to him and doesn't accept his offering, the humble heart would have said, what did I do wrong? (laughs) I really don't know. Tell me what I did wrong. I want to change. I want to do better next time. But spiritual pride doesn't allow us to do that. It causes us to react when we're countered, when our opinion is not accepted. And so God continues. 
the next couple of verses, he is going to actually issue a warning to Cain. He's asked questions. He's tried to draw Cain out. Cain is not responding. He's holding his ground. He's digging in with his spiritual pride. And now God is going to issue a warning. But please note, anytime we see God's warnings in Scripture, they are always, always out of an initial posture of love, care, and concern. They may sound harsh, but they're offered out of compassion. Let me give you an example of how this rings true in my life, how I've seen this, felt this myself. And I, forgive me, like I just said just a few moments ago, I'm getting old, so I have a bad memory. I don't think I've given this illustration before. I've looked up all my sermons. I couldn't find it. Sometimes I add stuff to my sermon at the last minute, so I may have already given this illustration. Forgive me if I have. We first moved to Queens. Now I'm starting to think I actually did give this illustration. <laughs> but you get to get it again. We first moved to Queens in uh, 2009. My oldest son, Bud, was 9 or 10 at the time. And we live a block from, uh, people are shaking their heads. Have you heard this already? Uh, we live a block from Queens Boulevard, which is the main boulevard in all of the borough of Queens. It's six lanes deep, very busy street, cars zooming by. I have Bud in my hand, and we're walking towards that block. We're heading to the subway train stop. There's a train stop. You have to go actually cross three lanes of traffic. It's in the middle of the boulevard where the train stop is. We're halfway down the block. But apparently sees something, I don't know what it is, he takes his hand out of my hand and starts running towards Queens Boulevard. And immediately I try to not to panic, and I say, Bud, and no response, he's still running. I raise my voice, Bud, he's still running. I'm running and also yelling, Bud, stop, Bud, stop. He's almost to Queens Boulevard. At this point, I can't catch him. There's, there's nothing I can do. The only thing I can do is scream and yell at the top of my lungs and put some fear into his heart. Maybe he stops for that. And as loud as I can, Bud, Stork, stop! And thank Jesus he did. But not because I was yelling. <laughs> because the Siberian Husky he wanted a pet was stopped right there before Queens Boulevard. Now, if you were listening from the second or third floor of an apartment building and you heard a dad calling to his son like that, you would, th you would be ready to call Child Protective Services to protect that little boy from his dad. But you wouldn't have known the whole story. The story was I was trying to protect him from his death. It sounded harsh, but I guarantee you it was from a posture of love and compassion towards him. That is often where God's warnings come from. They sound harsh, but they come from a posture of love from our Heavenly Father not wanting to see us go to our own death and destruction. Here's the warning, verse 7. God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you, do not, if you do not do well, here it is, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. 
God is describing sin as one of those lions or cheetahs that you and I see on Nat Geo that's crouched down in the brush, waiting, watching as the pack of wildebeest come by or herd come by, and he's looking for the one to take out. Do you see your sin that way? Or maybe ask it a different way, a better way. Do you not see your sin because it's crouching? You see, our tendency is to simply see our sin as something we can tame, something we can hold in check. At least we can rationalize it. And God says, no, you can't. No, you can't. Don't play with it. Don't toy with it. Weed it out. Kill it. Don't wait. Get help. Ask for help. Admit you need help. You see, our sins crouch, and our sins to ourselves are always smaller and more hidden to ourselves than often what others can see. And they always have the capacity and goal to take us completely out and destroy us. Every grudge is a murder in a nutshell, is murder in a nutshell. Every envy is thievery in a nutshell. Every lust is adultery in a nutshell. If you ever hear of someone committing adultery, you will always hear that it started small. Sin is crouching. God says, do something about it. We continue, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. And then Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Where is Abel, your brother? Even after Cain murders his brother, God comes again with another question Where is your brother? And Cain follows in his footsteps, parents, excuse me, his parents' footsteps, morally and psychologically. Instead of owning up, he excuses himself. That's not his responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to babysit my brother? But once again, God is not asking these questions out of a goal of getting more information. Again, out of his long suffering. He's trying to get Cain to get to he's trying to get to Cain's heart and draw him out and draw him into the light of honest confession and repentance. But now Cain's pride has a lock on his soul. And sin and spiritual pride now have filled his heart. In verse 10 the Lord says, "What have you done?" A different type of question. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Even at this point, it's still not too late for Cain. If we are still hearing God's voice, it is still not too late. 
And even these harsh words of God's judgment are still laced with and an invitation of his grace. Do you remember Jonah's message he was commissioned to give to the city of Nineveh? Forty years, excuse me, 40 days, and Nineveh will be no more. That's a pretty harsh judgment. <laughs> That's what God told Jonah to go and tell Nineveh. I want you to stand up in the middle of the city and preach 40 days, and Nineveh will be no more. And if you recall, Jonah goes in the opposite direction. But not because he's afraid of preaching such a judgmental <laughs> message. But rather because of God's grace. Here's what he says in chapter 4 of Jonah. The reason I went the opposite way, God, is because I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew you were abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Because that's exactly what God did when Jonah finally did preach the message. The king started and then made a proclamation to the rest of the people. Who knows? If we repent, maybe God, maybe Jonah's God is forgiving and merciful. And he finds out that, yes, in fact, our God is merciful. We don't have much, we don't have time really to continue. We'll come back next week. But Cain gets banned even further east of Eden. He continues to remain obstinate. He complains. God puts a mark on him out of his grace, <laughs> again, protecting him, not wanting to see further bloodshed among his image bearers. But as much extension and offer, I close with this, of God's grace, of God's steadfast love that was given to Cain, you and I have even more today. You see, Hebrews 12, 24, the writer there has this passage in mind and points our eyes to Jesus. And there he says, remember Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And remember the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? Whereas God comes to Cain and says, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. There's an image bearer that lies dead in the ground. And I take that seriously. And his blood is crying out against you. The writer of Hebrews is saying, we have an even better Abel whose death, whose shed blood is currently crying out, not against you. Not against me, but for us. His blood cries out. If you are in him, his blood cries out and says, you are mine. And before the throne, despite whatever the enemy, despite whatever Satan would ever come and accuse you before the throne, Jesus' blood cries out and says, doesn't matter. I've paid for it with my own blood. 
and I cry out, my blood cries out on his behalf. He is mine. My friends, to be reminded of that is a death blow to spiritual pride. And it's also what you and I need to be reminded that the thanksgiving level that we long to give back to God <laughs> be called forth. The more you and I believe that, remember that, and live by that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus, that your word tells us the grand truth, that despite our failing, despite our own waywardness, despite our own sin, our own spiritual pride, our own lack of gratitude, Jesus, your blood cries out on our behalf for us. Jesus, help us to be reminded. Help us to believe even further today. Help us to believe maybe even for the very first time that your death was that impactful that could completely change our status before a holy, loving God that we could be fully accepted in your sight despite our record. Help us to believe that the first time or the thousandth time we pray. For Christ's sake, amen.